All right. Morning. Uh, my name is Marshall Gallagher. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11 this morning. If you want to pull out your Bibles and turn there, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one close by, either behind you or the seat in front of you uh, to the side. Uh, and we've got quite a bit of reading to do. I feel like that's a sick joke for every like preacher, right? You're held hostage by whatever I would like to read this morning. Uh, no, but uh, you guys are going to help me, and I'll explain it in just a minute. Uh, but we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, <clears throat> before we jump in, uh, just to kind of orient us to the text, um, about a year ago or so, I uh, to the World War II. Uh, anybody been there? Uh, in New Orleans or the museum. Uh, but it, it was really cool. Is to try to immerse you into the world of what was World War II. And there's every campaign and different areas all around the world. And it's really, really fascinating. Um, I would go back and just kind of redo it. And one of those things you could spend all day there. Uh, and, you know, of course, I had studied World War II. My grand, both my grandfathers in World War II. It was uh, something I was relatively familiar with, uh, much like many of us. But the unique thing uh, wasn't just, like, the sights and seeing the planes and all that, but they had these little booths. And you'd walk in. It was kind of one of those audio booths. And you'd just press one of those, like, museum red buttons. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and, uh, and it would play, but there would be a picture and the name of who was speaking. And they were all telling about the same thing that had happened. So they had gathered these guys and something very, very specific like, hey, I remember when we had to uh, find this crashed plane. Or I remember when the, the uh, like in Normandy was the section I was in. I remember when we were in the gliders and there were people all around us and they were drowning and we were trying to get them out of the water. And it was like four men talking about this. I mean, obviously they were older, but it had their kind of like, uh, marine photo there and, and you literally saw their name, you could hear their voice and, and that fact totally changed everything. The fact that there were actual names, pictures, portraits of these men speaking about what had happened. It wasn't just this far, far away abstract idea that probably I knew better than from like playing video games than any real concept. But when I was immersed hearing the sights and sounds and hearing the actual voices and seeing faces and names, it just, it changed it. It became real in a different, different way than it had been. Um, and so we have a ton of names to read through in chapter 11 and half of 12. Um, and this is one of those passages, most of the time when you see names in genealogies, you're kind of, especially as a preacher, when you read the Bible, you're looking for a sentence that sticks out, jumps out. That's like, oh, that's the key. That's the weird thing. Here's the thing that kind of unlocks it. That's, that's not this chapter. It's, it's literally a list of names of who came back to the city to help rebuild it. Uh, this is a memorial. 
And so I feel like my work was cut out for me where I was like, okay, let me read it again. All right, yep, names. Okay, let me read it again. All right, some names. And, and that's what we have. Um, and so that's where I want you guys to help me. I'm going to have you all read with me out loud once we get to chapter 12. Not the whole thing. I would not dare do that to all of you. Uh, but so 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 says that the, uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, uh, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so that is kind of all scripture is equally inspired by God. It doesn't say all scripture is equally inspiring, But that's where we are. And so I don't want to communicate that this is somehow like a lesser passage than, you know, the resurrection text. But obviously it's okay. I know I used to feel this guilt of like, well, if if I don't love these genealogies and, and if Chronicles isn't equally as inspiring to me as Galatians, then like, where am I? I need to check my heart. And it's okay. But we can still get a lot out of this. And so hopefully, uh, this may not be as devotionally rich of a text. Like I wouldn't say, hey, when you're really struggling, beeline it to Nehemiah 11. It'll lift your soul like no other passage. But it does set us in the reality of what's going on. And so as you all read in chapter 12, remember, hey, if you want to just jump in there and do 11 with me, that's fine too. But I'll give kind of a pause we're all going to read chapter 12 just because this is, is quite the task. Uh, but it's also not lost in me that like because of either maybe being out of a habit or just being busy, this may be the longest that anyone in here or, or that you know a few of us have read the word of God this week. Um, and so let's not shamefully like, you know, tisk tisk, you should be reading long, but let's just enter into it. It's the word of God. It is good for our souls. There's something that transformative that happens about it. And hopefully you will hear these names and not just read them or say them as these distant people, but these are real people, real names, fathers and sons and daughters, people who are actually there. And so hopefully we get a little bit of sense of that. So let me read the text. Uh, And again, chapter 12, we'll all kind of read it together. Um, But Nehemiah 11.1, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And the sons of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, the sons of Perez, and Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Colhoseh, son of Hazaiah, son of Adaiah, son of Joyirib, son of Zechariah, son of Shalonite, and all 
All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshalem, the son of Joad, son of Pedaiah, son of Kolaiah, son of Messiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshaiah, and his brother, men of brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hesanua, the second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Saraiah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshullam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adaiah, the son of Jehoram, son of Pelaiah, Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Peshur, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of the father's houses, 242. And Amashai, the son of Azarel, son of Ahzai, son of Meshilamoth, son of Immer, and the brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseers was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolim. And the, of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Az, Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatai, and Josabad, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside of the work of the house of God, and Mataniah, the son of Mekah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks and Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jedithun, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172, and the rest of Israel and the priests and the Levites were all in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba were over the temple servants. The overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Mekah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pethaiah, the son of Meshezabel, the son of the sons of Zerah, the sons of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kir. Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and Jechabziel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molada, and Peth Pelet, and in Hazar Shual, and Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mekana, and its villages, in In Ramon, in Zora, in Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adalam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Ezekah and its villages. So they camped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived in Geba onward, in Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Rama, Gitim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of the Craftsmen, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. All right, deep breath. You guys ready? 12.1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, Saraiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, 
Amariah, Malak, Hatush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Edo, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Minijmin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Beni, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, and Bakbakiah and Uni, and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua, the father of Joachim, Joachim, the father of Eliashib, Eliashib, the father of Joyada, Joyada, the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan, the father of Jadua. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sarahiah, Merahiah, Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshullam, of Ariah, Jehonanan, Makulki, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Marioth, Helkai, of Edu, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshullam, of Abijah, Zikri of Miniamin, of Moadiah, Piltai of Bilga, Shemua of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Joyrib, Matanai, of Jediah, Uzi, of Selai, Kelai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nethanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joyida, Johanan, and Jadu, the Levites were recorded as heads of the fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of the fathers' houses were written in the book of Chronicles until the days of Jehanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbakiah, Obadiah, Meshullam, Talman, and Akub were the gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor of Ezra, the priest and the scribe. This is the word of the Lord. Cheering is an appropriate response, whoever, the happy person over there. Yeah, I'm proud of you guys. But we need to go cross-reference that list in Chronicles, so if you guys... No, I'm kidding. Um, All right, so uh, my main point today is that God restores real people in real places in real time in history so that they can worship him. So God restores real people in real places in a real time in history so that they can worship him. Um, That's not like this flashy, wow, I can't believe how deep that is. Uh, But I think a lot of times we live like that statement is not true. And I think we can just see it. We can look at all of our lives interiorly And think to ourselves, am I really, really living like God really does restore actual people in actual places for the purpose of worshiping him? 
I think at a 30,000 foot view, right, way up here, we could say, well, yeah, yeah, God, you know, restores things. But why, why is this happening to me right now? And when we distrust things that are happening, when things seem to catch fire, I think we forget that God is in the business of restoring real people in real places. The Bible, all over, you see unfaithful people, God being faithful. Unfaithful people, God being faithful. God continuing to stick with his people, continuing to stick with places, continuing to stick throughout time and history with this raggedy bunch of messy sinners and continuing to lift them up and restore them and restore them and restore them. That's kind of the main theme of the Bible is God's restoration back to him. What was once broken, him drawing people to himself over and over and over again. And so while we might say, well, of course he does that, uh, I wonder if we would risk more for God, if we would consider the kingdom more for God, if we would be willing to be wrong more because we knew God was the one who would restore us, that God had us, and he, he actually knew where I was right now and intended me to be there, that we'd have more confidence either to engage in conversations or with people when we might be hesitant to do so or not have to because we don't need to be right in that moment. I bet we would forgive more if we really believed that God restores things. Specifically, in your life, right now, right now at this point in time in history. And so I think most of us, especially if you're a Christian, you say, oh, yeah, yeah, God restores people, sure. But has that gone from like the mental ascent down to our heart to where we walk knowing that? Um, and I think if people take snapshots of my life, they can easily identify when I'm acting out of that foundational kind of truth that God is a restorer or when I'm not. And I'm trying to be the restorer. Or I'm trying to manipulate things to be the restorer. Or money is the restorer. Comfort or safety or me padding my life with all this stuff that I can control. That's what's really going to... I know God has me for heaven, but, but specifically right here and now, that's not... We don't articulate that, but we sure do live like it. So again, God restores real people in real places in real time in history so that they can worship him. And so if you want to look at verse 1 through 3, probably the most exciting part of this passage... Says the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. That sets the scene. And so, if you remember, just a little while ago, Nehemiah was weeping that the city was just in ruin. And you have the kind of mirrored passage of Ezra of rebuilding the temple. And then Nehemiah, had, they had just finished the wall. They had just worshipped him. And they did this great work. And, and the last scene was this wonderful worship setting. But now what? I mean, now there's this massive revival. God is with his people again. And it's kind of, you come up over that first hard hill and then you're like, oh, wow. 
like we we have to rebuild a city not physically rebuild the walls but like repopulate an entire huge city that just a short period of time ago was in ruin and so that's what was happening and and we can read here and in the rest of the people so all the leaders and, and that shouldn't be taken for granted. Like the story of all the prophets or the leaders were the last ones to step up and lead. And so now the leaders are actually filling Jerusalem again. It says, and the rest of the people, these are the people in the surrounding areas, cast lots to bring one out of ten. And in the Hebrew, it's one hand of ten hands. And so we kind of lose some of that like beauty and descriptiveness, but it's, it's I, I mean, you can almost get the picture of people putting their hand and saying, I'm willing, let's cast lots, which was kind of this weird like pick a number system that we don't know a ton about, but just trusting in God's sovereignty over it all. The rest of the people all put their hands in and one out of every 10 went into Jerusalem, went from their comfort, from their place they were familiar with, from their family, and the other nine remained in their towns. And the people blessed, verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so this may have been like the people casting lots, or it may have been other people who just volunteered. I'll go, I'll repopulate the city. But again, like we think of it as this big thing way out here. Just like, oh yeah, there were all these young men who were on D-Day in Normandy. So getting a little closer, like these are real people. Think of one of every 10 of us. If we just had to line up everybody in this room, and 10% of us were just going to go somewhere else. Like leave their town, a day's travel away, a couple days travel away. These are fathers and sons, employees, people helping, like just run normal life. And they said, I'll leave. It was incredibly costly and sacrificial. I mean, it's easy to read this like, oh, okay, so a handful of people went into the city. But I mean, remember, this was in ruins. Just a few chapters ago, the people were worried that in the middle of the night they were going to come and get murdered by these people outside the city that did not want them to succeed. And so it's saying, I'm willing to go in. I'm willing to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Kind of for the underlying purpose of so that we can establish the city again and bring people to worship him. And that's why the people blessed them, is because they knew how difficult this was going to be. They knew how sacrificial they were going to uh, have to walk and serve God way more than their comfort and everything else. But also, even as we're reading, um, most of the lists in the Bible are pretty much like set out by family, household, and tribe. And it's a little different because it's not completely built that way. So they talk about the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers and the singers. And so they're vocationally kind of set up, which is a little bit different. So the whole purpose is pointing toward the most important thing about these lists is that they're establishing this whole economy of the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the number one thing. Worshiping God was their primary objective. And remember, they had been in exile 
because that was not their primary objective. So again, there are these big concepts that I think it's easy for us to miss because we're not there. But these were real people whose grandparents maybe knew of what Jerusalem looked like. But it's just a distant memory. The city was just busted up and broken. But they knew that they needed to put God first to worship him. And so they occupied the city. And so that could kind of translate to us, to us as individuals. So to you as an individual, like when is the last time that you really, really believe that he restores? That's that's a part of his character, that he will build you up for the purpose of worship, it may look different than thinking greatness because here in Jerusalem, I'm sure people got there and they were like, wow, so I get the, the house with the hole busted in the roof and not in like a spiritual way of guys trying to meet Jesus, but like because a, some kind of siege weapon destroyed it 150 years ago. This is my house that I get, yep. What was, when was the last time that maybe you trusted God enough to sacrifice something like your own comfort, your own safety, your own money, maybe your, your ego, your status in a group? Because you knew that, you, okay, you're relying on God restoring. You don't need to build things up. And, and usually they're good things. But you don't need to rely on that more than God because you really trust that he really has an eye on you and knows exactly where you are. And he's the one that's going to do the work. And you'd be willing to sacrifice whatever that thing is that brings you the most hope of restoration and the most comfort and safety. And I wonder even for us, so last week, I went over to uh, Parks PCA. It's a church plant. They just celebrated their two-year anniversary last Sunday. Like, that's amazing, right? Um, the fact that they've made it two years, they are incredibly like us. We, uh, Spencer and I will get together with the pastors, the two pastors over there, and we talk about a ton that we are so similar. We, we have the same struggles. We have the same, about the same group of people, um, and I was just sitting there, you know, and they had free barbecue, so uh, I was there and Spencer was there, and then our significant others followed in after us. Um, but I was just looking around, and I was meeting handfuls of people who had left their churches two years ago to be a part of this new church. And most of them were coming from a church just like a mile down the road. And I was just hearing these stories and thinking, like, how inspiring it was that two years ago or more than two years ago, they looked around and they said, this is my home church. And it has been for years and years and years. But you know what? I'm going to give that up so that I can go help build something new. And, and maybe some of them were just kind of bored and they wanted to see something different, right? Right? But I've got to believe that so many people had to trust that God actually is the one 
who is going to build up, restore, do this work, or they would never have left their home church. I mean, some people had been a part of these churches for 20 years. Our church is relatively new. Like, how many of, of us would just leave to a totally different place, restart a community, be fully bought in to go, sent, sent, go be sent with a group of people who you may or may not know, and the main purpose is to build a church of people who you have not met yet. I hope I can ask all of us corporately, but many of you individually to someday do that. And that's not like I want to get them out of here, but I hope that all of us would be sacrificial and trusting God enough to walk away from something good like a community like this for the benefit of people worshiping God. And if that terrifies you, if you think there's no, I, would, I wouldn't do that. You might be exactly the person who God is slowly trying to call to do that. You know, I ask a question a lot, um, and it's just a question I mull around in my head. And it's if, um, if the discipling kind of groups or discipling patterns of my life or other groups' lives uh, if that were to continue on for 50 years or 100 years, uh, would the church still exist? If every group was like the group that I was a part of or, or every church was the church or every kind of, you know, whether it's a dinner group, whether it's a fellowship group, whether it's a prayer group, if that is what the church was, would it exist in 100 years? And I think even specifically for us and the groups that we're all a part of, I think it's a good question to ask. Or maybe if everyone in church looked like me, would the church be flourishing? Or just doing some kind of self-evaluation, in 100 years would it be more likely that we would just, you know, if the church were just like me, if everybody's just like me, would I be one of those churches that people drove past or looked in and said, ah, you know, that's just so tough. Like, they're just dwindling because at some point they just stopped being on the same mission to make disciples and build churches. It's happening all over this city especially. And so I think those are good questions to ask. Um, And then even asking, what, what would it look like if the gospel saturated this part of town? Or if you're not from this part of town, think of your own city, or your own neighborhood. Like, what, what would it take? And I think it would take a lot of shifts, but it starts with just individuals. Um, and I, I even fear that this is like this dead horse that I'll just beat and beat and beat. And, you know, more and more it'll be like, here we go again, talking about multiplication and planting churches and disciples and everything like that. Um, I think that that is the primary objective that God has had since the beginning of time, is gathering people to him to worship. I think that's the primary thing Jesus did. I think that's the parting word that he gave the disciples, and I think that's the story of Acts, the building the church, 
gathering people to worship. And then we even read um, from Revelation that, that that's the end goal as well, is just worshiping God. And I wonder if that's as important to all of us, myself included, as it is to Jesus. But, again, that's that 30,000-foot view, and so I hope that we're seeing that God restores real people in real places in real time in history. And so look at the real time, real place uh, of Jerusalem. Um, It lists all these places. The, The people lived in Judah, so Judah was this surrounding area. And then it talks about all its villages, Dibon and Jeshua and Ziklag and Zora and Lachish and Beersheba. And some, maybe some of you caught like a couple of those places like, oh, I remember that from the Gospels. I remember that. It was just fanning out all these cities all centered around Jerusalem. And those are real places. Like I thought about putting a big map up on the screen. Um, I don't have any like real good ones and I'm, it probably would have been a missed opportunity. But you go look at this countryside, like many places that are still there today, all these settlements, like actual people lived in these places uh, during the Persian Empire. It says, uh, you know, in verse 22, in the days of Eliashib, who was the head priest in the reign of Darius the Persian. And so that's a time marker. It's setting a time period. This is a real king. These are people in a political environment where it wasn't necessarily just safe and perfect to worship their God, right? As long as they kept it under control. But I mean, think about the, the mental kind of situation, emotional situation that we even find ourselves today, right? Like there's this discussion of religious freedom and persecution and then you think about like countries like China think about countries where in the Middle East where this was where you are no longer allowed to even talk about Jesus there's a real threat of death these real places and real time in this Persian Empire in the Middle East was where they were Um, and then even think about Jesus, like God working through time, the time that Jesus came, I don't think was totally random. It was a part of the Roman Empire, and so these people who were oppressed, they're waiting for this political kind of ruler. Um, The Pharisees are terrified that their religion, that their day, the morality, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, so we got to double down on the rules. Those were the Pharisees. And they missed Jesus. The people who were obsessed with, well, we don't have any freedom. We're in this oppressive Roman government, Pax Romana, yeah, right. They're just conquering cultures and cultures. We need a king to come and overthrow them. And they missed Jesus. And the disciples, when Jesus opened their eyes to them and they said, Jesus said, I'm going to go. And it's going to be better that I'm not here with you. And in that moment in history, there were roads like there had never been before. Technology, even like paper and little things like that. Like there's all these records of people handing out tracks, like old school grandma think tracks, right? Not Duck Dynasty ones, but tracks nonetheless. And they'd write little pieces of scripture on pieces of paper and literally go door to door handing out, you thought that was the lamest thing in the world, people got it from the first century. 
There was a unique time, a real time in history where God chose to insert himself in the flesh and then leave in a real point in time in history and this explosion of the gospel happened. I mean, think about the Reformation, what that would have looked like if there was no printing press. I mean, that was part of the problem. Because people could only have the word of God if they had a lot of resources. The printing press comes, changes the landscape of information and the word of God getting out to the people. You think God was just like, wow, <laughs> we lucked out with that one. I didn't even think about them creating this printing press. I just kind of, I don't know, I'm just letting them do whatever. And this just worked out really well. God is working. God is restoring in a real place, in real history. And this Jerusalem is where they are. Even think about here in Nashville. Like, the world is coming here. I looked at, there were like 50 of these, but Nashville was named the best sports city in Sports Business Journal, Top 15 Cities in Travel and Leisure, World's Best Awards, Forbes, Top 10 American Cities for Family-Friendly Travel, Global Travers, Travelers Leisure uh, Lifestyle Award as the number one leisure destination in the U.S., the number six best weekend destination in North America, and the number eight best adventure destination domestically. And Nashville is said to rank 15 on best places to live in the U.S., according to U.S. News and World Report. And so that's tourism, right? But people are coming to Nashville. The city is growing. I mean, there's that 100-person number a day. Do you think it's a mistake that you are here right now in Nashville? Or do you actually trust that God is, is in this business of restoring, building up? Like at real moments in time and history, real places. And like what that would look like for God to, for the city of Nashville to be restored in this revival type setting where just like Morgan prayed, we would, like our biggest problem, what if our biggest problem is that we were baptizing so many people that like this old janky tub was like falling apart some of you haven't seen this in a while you'll just have to take my word for it what if that was our biggest problem we didn't have to like my biggest concern is what are we going to do with all these baby christians and my biggest kind of need was everybody here needing to kind of step up a little bit and start discipling all these people what if that was our biggest concern like, we're in the, one of the fastest-growing neighborhoods and one of the fastest-growing cities in the entire United States. We don't have to go out anywhere, and I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think God is haphazard about it. I think he knows exactly where you work, the cubicle that you sit in, the little team or corner of the office that you are a part of, this bigger hole, and he has an intentional plan for you to represent him, to be a restorer and a worship builder. 
and, and think how easy it would have been. Like if you track with these categories, it's clear that the worship and the singing, and even those last verses 22 through 26, it talks about how they were standing together opposite to praise to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. So there's this constant, and the next scene is going to be this dedication, this singing, this worshipful time where they're again, I mean, there it is right there, the dedication of the wall. It's just a constant praise of God, building up worshipers. He's restored this city. He's restored us in Jerusalem and now we're going to worship. And so just think about how easy it would have been to say, well, we got to establish food, we got to establish this and that, amenities first, or an economy first, not worship first, but they knew that's exactly where they needed to be. Practicality did not come into play as the primary thing. Um, but we are going somewhere as well, and so this worship is heading toward that new city and new earth. And so Christ left. He also came back, or he also said he was going to come back one day, coming back to totally restore things. So we've seen this internal restoration. We're seeing it unfold. And still, Christ is going to return to completely restore everything. Like there will be a day where actual people will see the dissension again of Christ to a real place, a city coming out of the heavens at a real point in time in history. He didn't just come to save us from our sins. He didn't just come to reconcile us to his father. But there's this third kind of piece there that he will come again to restore everything so that we don't have to try to worship. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, just worship. And so at the end of this thing where he, he has all these actual people that he has drawn to himself, we are going to a place, going to a new Jerusalem at a specific point in time in history. And Jesus said, it's not, it, my father's appointed it. Like we're traveling somewhere. And so even with these people in Nehemiah, that they have restored the city, they're doing all this stuff, they're bringing people in to worship. Hopefully we ought to have that same attitude with drawing people into worship as well. And that we're moving to a place. And that even though we will fail miserably, we know that at some point, that's not going to be a concern of ours. We will be able to worship God without any other cares. So God restores real people in real places in real time in history so that they can worship him. And I just want to ask, are you on board? Is that part of your life's kind of mission or work? Like, Do you believe that he's restoring you or that he's capable of 
I don't say ask anybody in this room. Just don't ask yourself. Usually you're like the worst one. You're thinking nothing's happening. God hasn't changed this. It's so easy to kind of get down. But do you believe that God is restoring you and he's sending you somewhere specifically so that we collectively can all worship him just like this group of people who sacrificially left what they held dear to build that for others. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to it and uh, walk away changed. Um, God, that's by your spirit. And so... Lord, we are grateful for the grace that you hold in even a simple list of names, what it means. I pray that you would help us look at our lives um, with that truth and that it would change us little by little uh, and that we would all be brought to worship you more uh, because you're the point, you're the end goal, Lord, that we would have you, um, that we would worship and walk with you. I pray that you would Uh, supernaturally do that in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.